I'm Chris Clutchman. I'm the Deputy Director in the Community Services Division at DHCD, and I'll pass it to my colleague, Nate. Hi, everyone. I'm Nate Carlucci, and I'm the MBTA Communities Coordinator at DHCD. Katie? I'm Katie Lacey. I'm the Senior Planner at Mass Housing Partnership. And in that role, I'm running our direct technical assistance program for municipalities who are trying to comply with the new MBTA community zoning law, um, which it provides third-party assistance to cities and towns. And our first round is underway. We have 56 communities we're working with, so. Thanks, Katie. And Greg? Yeah, hi, I'm excuse me, Greg Sampson. I'm a partner with Womble Bond Dickinson. I'm an attorney. I represent uh, developers throughout the Commonwealth um, with a lot of transit-oriented development projects. I um, worked with DHCD uh, during the adoption of the guidelines as a NAOPS representative on that. And I'm also uh, the chair of the City of Melrose Planning Board, uh, which is an MBTA community. So I'm kind of bringing the perspective of both the development side and the municipal side. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Greg. Um, so first, we'll uh, start out with a presentation from Chris and Nate. Thank you so much. Let's just get right into the first slide. Uh, and thank you, Caitlin, for projecting the slides. Um, I'm, we're going to be sending up PDF of this PowerPoint as well. Um, and so in addition to the recording, you can have the deck um, that we're showing. Um, I'm gonna start out, um, I'm not gonna go through a lot of data to convince everybody here about um, the housing crisis that we have in the Commonwealth. I think we're all very well aware of, we're at the top, in the top five across the country for states with high home values and uh, high rental costs. Um, so, that, you know, as has been you know, well, well documented, um, we have an issue with housing and it, we do believe that that comes from a lack of supply uh, and lack of putting housing in the right place. So we're very excited um, in the, uh, in, in, at DHCD to be um, implementing this new law. Um, it's gonna provide for 100, we actually have, there's 175 MBTA communities when the law was adopted. Um, new Bedford and Fall River are, make two new communities. So it's actually 177 communities. We're looking to create, um, remove some of the zoning barriers to allow for multifamily housing near transit where transit exists and where transit doesn't exist. About half of the MBTA communities don't have transit stations within their boundaries, but they're all adjacent to and very close to transit access, uh, to transit. Um, we, this is um, uh, multifamily housing, um, as, as you folks will know, um, in currently in many communities is unpredictable and time consuming. Um, I know the development community really likes to have certainty when you go into um, a project. And um, currently we have uh, the, the approval and entitlement process is anything but certain in many, many communities. We also have um, communities where there are a handful of communities that are producing quite a high volume of housing and multifamily housing, but it is certainly not distributed amongst the 175 communities. So we're really excited about this new law to set a new paradigm um, for removing zoning barriers. Uh, and also to focus on creating walkable neighborhoods um, that are transit oriented where it's possible and hopefully where there isn't transit stations um, in the right locations. Next slide. 
So this is just a really brief um, timeline that shows some of the key milestones. Um, back in January 14th of 2021, just uh, two years ago, the governor signed um, the Economic Development Bond Bill um, that uh, changed, made several changes to Chapter 40A, the Zoning Act. Um, one was the simple majority provisions that allow for certain uh, zoning amendments to go through a simple majority process. Uh, and important for this conversation, the uh, new Section 3A which we'll be talking about in detail. Um, we immediately issued some guidance about you know, how, what was compliance and when compliance would be effective uh, in, G in 2021. And then we produced draft guidelines in December. We had a robust public comment period where we had almost 400 um, uh, people give us comments and letters. Um, and generally people thought that the draft guidelines were good. Um, we heard a lot from small communities uh, and from on the ground realities. And so we made some pretty um, specific changes to those and issued the final guidelines in August of 2022. We made a minor revision to one section, section 4B, um, which is about affordability um, in October in response to communities who were concerned about um, uh, their ability to use inclusionary zoning provisions. Um, we've continued, there is a key portion of the compliance requirements, which requires um, use of a compliance model. We'll talk briefly about that, and that was issued in November of 2022. And then we have a key deadline coming up later this month um, when action plans are due. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that um, so that you can understand what that means to communities. Uh, next slide. I'm going to pass it over to Nate to talk to you about the law. Thanks, Chris. So I'm going to walk through uh, primarily the Section 3A compliance guidelines. Those can get very detailed and in the weeds, but I'm hopeful that we can do a high-level overview today that will allow you to walk away with a basic understanding of the framework of the program. Uh, but in order to do that, it's helpful to start with looking at the actual text of the statute of Section 3A, which is broken down into three paragraphs. The first paragraph essentially contains all of the zoning requirements um, the second paragraph sets forth the funding sources that are at stake with compliance with the program, and the third paragraph uh, tasks DHCD with developing the program guidelines. Um, so I should note that in that first paragraph there, there are a lot of terms that are either defined terms in the Zoning Act or terms that require interpretation, and that's really the substance of what the guidelines do for us. Um, next slide, please. One of the most important things that the guidelines do is they divide the MBTA communities into four community categories. Um, before thinking about what those categories are, we need to think about what an MBTA community actually is. Um, MBTA communities are defined in the Zoning Act, but with reference to Chapter 161A, the MBTA statute, where those communities are named. Um, and now there's 177 MBTA communities, as Chris mentioned. So it's important to be able to categorize those communities to an extent that will allow us to um, have the requirements make sense based on the community types. So the division of community categories um, depended on transit, fixed transit assets that were in the community. Um, it was not as direct as the presence of a transit station in a community, it was actually dependent on developable land in proximity to a transit station that really uh, is the land that represents the best opportunity to zone for multifamily housing. Uh, next slide, please. 
So this table here breaks down the basic differences between the four community categories that we have as MBTA communities. Um, you can see those four community category names at the top of the table, rapid transit, commuter rail, adjacent, and adjacent small town. Um, they're somewhat self-explanatory. Rapid transit communities have um, station area, developable station area from a rapid transit station. Commuter rail communities have it from a commuter rail station. Adjacent communities have um, no, no, basically it's less than 100 acres of developable station area within their boundaries. And then finally, the adjacent small towns are adjacent communities that also have um, a population density of uh, less than 500 people per square mile or a population of less than 7,000. So the statute requires each MBTA community to have a zoning district of reasonable size. The first two rows of this table sort of define what reasonable size means. Reasonable size consists of two subcategories, land area and unit capacity. Uh, for land area, in most communities, the requirement is 50 acres. However, the adjacent small towns don't have a minimum land area requirement. And there are also adjustments for the other communities in certain circumstances, such as where a community might not have a lot of developable land in total. Um, that community would have a, a lesser requirement for its um, Section 3A land area. Um, the other part of reasonable size is unit capacity, and that's essentially the number of um, multifamily housing units that could be developed based on the zoning. And um, you can see here that we use a formula to derive each community's required unit capacity. And that formula asks more of communities that are in the higher level of community categories. Um, it's based on the housing stock from the 2020 decennial census. And for example, in a rapid transit community, the community's unit capacity requirement would be 25% of its housing stock at that time. Um, location requirements for the districts do vary by community category. Um, the statute asks that the, or requires rather that the district be located um, within a half mile of a transit station where applicable. Um, so that's only possible really in the rapid transit and commuter rail um, community categories. And on a further slide, we'll get into a little bit more detail about how that plays out. Finally, there's a difference in the compliance deadline based on community categories. The rapid transit communities have a quick turnaround with the deadline at the end of this year, 2023. Most communities are commuter rail or adjacent communities. They have until the end of 2024. And finally, the adjacent small towns have an extra year until the end of 2025. Uh, next slide, please. So just a, a little bit more detail on unit capacity. Um, sometimes people are curious about how unit capacity might be affected by existing development within a district. So it's important to understand that the unit capacity is actually agnostic to existing development. There's an example at the bottom of this slide uh, of a parcel that has an existing duplex, but it's zoned to allow for four units on that parcel. Um, when thinking about what that parcel's unit capacity is, it's four, regardless of whether there are no housing units on it now or whether there's 100 on it now or it's vacant. It's just based on the zoning, and, and here the, the, the zoning allows for four. Uh, next slide, please. 
So for our district location requirements, these are applicable when a community actually has a developable station area. Uh, for this example, we use the town of Needham, which is a great example. They, they have four uh, commuter rail stations, and so they have a ton of developable station area. And the basic premise is that the more station area that a community has, the more of its zoning district is required to be located within those station areas. Um, you can see on the table on the left, for example, um, communities that have zero through 100 acres of developable station area are not required to locate any of their district within station areas. That reflects the uh, community category of adjacent communities too. Those are, again, those are communities with less than 100 acres of developable station area. Um, conversely, at the, the bottom row of that table, you can see that for a community like Needham, um, if you, there's more than 800 acres of developable station area, that community is required to locate 90% of its district within those station areas. Um, that refers to both the land area of the district and um, the unit capacity, but it's in reference to its minimum requirements rather than the actual district. So for example, if Needham used 100 acres, even though it's only required to have 50, it would only be required to have 90% uh, uh, of, the, of the minimum requirement. Um, next slide, please. So when we think about multifamily housing, it actually is defined in the Zoning Act. Um, it's a building with three or more residential dwelling units, or it can also, the definition can also be satisfied with two duplexes on the same lot. Um, but when we think about multifamily housing in reference to Section 3A, we also want to think about the density requirements. Um, the statute requires that these zoning districts have a gross density of 15 units per acre. And when you think about what 15 units per acre looks like on the ground, it's not that mid-rise development that you see on the right-hand side of this slide. And of course, it's not the single-family houses that you see on the left. It's those missing middle typologies uh, that you see highlighted in the middle of this slide. I like to think of it as sort of a traditional New England town center um, style of development. Next slide, please. Um, I want to talk a little bit about as of right zoning. Of course, the statute requires that the multifamily housing be allowed as of right. Um, and there are a lot of factors that can affect whether that housing is allowed as of right. Uh, a common question is the role is about the role of site plan review. Um, the guidelines do allow a site, a site plan review process. It can be required, but it can't impose any unreasonable requirements or undue delays on proposed projects. So it really has to be an objective and not a discretionary process. Um, another popular topic is mixed use zoning. And in particular here, the, the cases of mandatory mixed use development. So the guidelines, of course, do allow a community to have mixed use zoning where they allow um, mixed uses within these 3A districts. They can incentivize the mixed use, but what they can't do is make it mandatory. There cannot be, for example, a mandatory street retail component um, within a section 3A compliant district. And finally on this slide, I just wanna mention for energy efficiency, there's a basic requirement just that multifamily housing cannot be required to meet higher standards than other uses in the municipality, such as single family houses. Uh, next slide. 
Probably the most popular topic in terms of as of right zoning is affordability. Um, as a reminder, Section 3A is not an affordable housing program, but what the guidelines do is they they impose limits on the extent to which a municipality can require uh, affordability within their compliant zoning districts. So there are a few rules to that. The primary rule is that uh, any community may require um, up to 10% of units to be affordable at household incomes um, of 80% of the area median income without question. There are a couple paths to requiring more affordability. One of them is a community can go through another DHCD program, such as going through Chapter 40R. Uh, in that case, they can require that up to 20% of units are affordable, and they can be affordable at incomes below 80% AMI um, if they go through that other DHCD review process. There's also a, an exception for pre-existing 40R districts that already have, for example, a 25% um, requirement. They can keep that requirement in place, even if they have to amend that 40R district and expand it to meet the rest of the Section 3A requirements. For communities that want to require more affordability but are not going to go through another DHCD program, they too can go up to 20% of units affordable at AMIs below 80, but if they do that, they have to submit an independent third-party um, economic feasibility analysis, analysis to support the feasibility of multifamily housing in the district with those requirements. Uh, we are in the near future going to release a little bit more detail about the specific requirements for that study. Um, and finally, I want to mention most communities want any affordable units that arise from these districts to be eligible for the subsidized housing inventory. We don't require that they are. Uh, and one reason for that is that some communities actually want to zone for workforce housing that's affordable to area median incomes. Um, sorry, that it's affordable to uh, households with, with incomes above 80% of the area median income. Uh, and those would actually not be eligible for the subsidized housing inventory. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so going back to the compliance timelines, we've already talked about the uh, deadline for full compliance to have adopted zonings and, and to have had that district recognized by DHCD as compliant with Section 3A. You might have noticed that the statute does not have an effective date set forth. So what the guidelines did is they established um, basically a concept of interim compliance where communities could take specific actions towards planning for compliant districts in the future. And when they take those actions, they achieve interim compliance with Section 3A and retain their eligibility for the funding sources that are at stake with compliance. So last year, all communities had to do was submit what we called a community information form. Um, 166 of the 175 communities did that, so they remained compliant for 2022. Uh, for this year, we have what's called an action plan. Um, you can see an action plan on our website, mass.gov slash MBTA communities. It's a pretty simple form, but what it does is it sets forth uh, a more detailed schedule for compliance activities for communities to um, undertake in the time from now until their, uh, their, their full compliance deadline. Um, so those are due on January 31st of this year, and we're expecting to see um, the vast majority of communities comply with that. Uh, we can go to the next slide. 
Uh, at this time, I'll turn it over to Chris to cover the compliance model and some technical assistance. Thanks so much, Nate. Um, so we've talked about uh, one of the components in, in, exist in addition to adopting zoning that would um, comply with the 3A requirements that Nate just went over. Um, in order to get to the unit capacity and some of the locational requirements, we have a compliance model. And I'm just gonna be very brief here. Um, there's a lot more information about the compliance model and a 40 page user guide that's available on the website. Um, so please, if you're interested in that, please go there and, and check it out. This is an activity for municipalities uh, in order to comply. So it starts with an export of um, an area that would be your the potential multifamily district um, that is drawn on a GIS map and then exported into Excel. Um, so you get all of the parcels that are in that uh, district, such as the one that's shown here on the left. Uh, the middle of the slide shows um, a key component of that. And so it's a zoning checklist. And so communities will go in and put in the, the parameters and the metrics that are in their zoning district in the in their 3a multifamily zoning district such as minimum lot size height allowed um, any far information so that um, those parameters and metrics that are put into the zoning checklist uh, will be applied to all of the parcels that are part of the district. And here's where you get to that unit capacity and nature do an example of how unit capacity works. So the zoning will get applied to each parcel and each parcel will be aggregated up to come up with a unit capacity for the entire district. And so the right-hand side shows a summary table that a community could look at to see, do they have enough acreage in their district? Do they have the unit capacity? Um, do they have the density? And and um, if, it, if they have a station area, are they meeting their percentage um, that's possible in the station area? So it's a fairly complex um, spreadsheet, um, but it's a pretty interesting way to look at zoning capacity um, for multifamily districts. Uh, next slide. This is, again, just very briefly talking to folks about technical assistance that's available to municipalities. Um, it's our goal that every municipality that wants assistance can get it. Katie's already talked about the 56 communities that they're working with. There's another uh, 19 communities that have received support from either my agency or um, Energy and Environmental Affairs. And um, uh, so, you know, we want to uh, make sure that folks have access to that. Um, and uh, so, so those are all available. Um, we're also uh, looking at, um, we have uh, resources about how to fill out an action plan. We have sample uh, bylaws that are going to be forthcoming and how-to guides. And I think that's going to be the end of, um, oh, what, uh, last slide, thanks. So just very briefly, this was our intention for you guys to get a quick introduction to Section 3A and a preview of the tools. And with that, we'll close our presentation and pass it on to the next speaker. Uh, the next speaker is Katie Lacey from the MHP. Thank you. Um, I'm going to be talking briefly about um, impl the implications of this law for housing affordability, uh, which, of course, we don't know yet because it's just rolling out now. But the, are the thoughts we're having in my position from an affordable housing organization? Next slide, please. So, as Nate described, you know, the big picture behind this law is that this is a direct response to the housing crisis in Massachusetts, very much grounded in a belief that 
a key way to address this issue is to increase the supply of housing. Next slide, please. Um, additionally, the idea is to put this housing near transit that will further reduce housing costs by reducing transit costs and with multifamily housing, potentially heat and utility costs as well. Next slide, please. So in summary, the argument, and I am not an economist, is very much based on a supply and demand discussion. And it goes like this. We're a very expensive house. Home prices are increasing. Um, vacancy rates are low. And that basically our housing costs result from insufficient housing supply and pointing at local zoning and other land use regulations. Again, I'm not an economist, but this is the basis behind this law. Um, next slide, please. What the law, so in effect, this law is a production law. As Nate said, it's not an affordable housing law. And what the law specifically does not address is the documented need for restricted, deeply affordable housing. This was documented really well in the recent um, Greater Boston Housing Report Card, where research from Boston um, indicators and researchers at BU showed that despite real big numbers of increased households that are housing that are cost burden, we're really just not building enough subsidized housing to meet the region's demand. And this is particularly true in the suburbs. And often the suburbs are really trying and it's just not happening. Next slide, please. But what do the, so even though the law is silent on it, what do the guidelines say about affordability? Nate just went through this, but I honestly think it can not bear repeating enough because it's complicated. And I think it says affordability requirements of up to 10% at 80% AMI is fine, considered as a right, that's deemed as a right housing. Up to 20% affordable or lower than 80% AMI, so deeper levels of affordability are acceptable with an economic feasibility analysis. Up to 20% affordable and or lower at 80% is allowed for DHCD, for districts approved under DHCD approved programs such as 40R. And finally, there was a lot of concern, existing 40R requirements, that should say districts, with pre-existing requirements of up to 25% can be maintained and expanded. And MHP, we really feel that the revisions to the guidelines to get to this point reflect a really thoughtful response to concerns on the part of communities and affordable housing advocates to the more limited provisions included in the early versions of the guidelines. Next slide, please. In part, we were made more comfortable when we realized, oh, the units created through these are basically inclusionary zoning units. Um, and this is a topic we are very familiar with. We help a lot of communities adopt inclusionary zoning bylaws. And more importantly, we were the Massachusetts field team for a big national survey of inclusionary zoning led by Grounded Solutions Network. Um, the survey showed, interestingly, that Massachusetts has, the per jurisdiction, more inclusionary zoning bylaws than any other municipality in any other state in the country. Um, 
the flip side of that is that the percentage of units created is actually extremely low in most communities. And in fact, 65% of the inclusionary zoning bylaws in Massachusetts have not produced a single unit of housing. And the single biggest determinant of success for a community was whether the affordability requirement, whether it's 10%, 20%, was feasible within that local market. We also really concluded that the more successful inclusionary zoning bylaws were supported by an economic feasibility analysis. In other words, communities that went ahead and did the work to do the feasibility analysis, and many of them have, were able to justify requirements well above 10%, and they have created quite a few affordable units. Next slide, please. I would be remiss at this point if I didn't just step aside and mention a very valid concern expressed by my wonderful colleagues at the LIP program at DHCD, that this section 3A could result in a rash of really poorly thought out inclusionary zoning provisions that would result in the creation of units that are not actually eligible to count on the SHI, which could be a big disappointment for communities. So I'm taking an opportunity on behalf of, of DHCD to remind everyone that inclusionary zoning units created through Section 3A, as with any inclusionary zoning program, have to, if you want to get them on the SHI, they have to comply with the 40B guidelines. And that goes right through you're working to get an approved application. They're subject to affirmative fair housing, monitoring, um, et cetera. So at that, I will end that, that note. Next, next slide, please. Nonetheless, despite all this, there's a lot of concerns and confusion coming about that we're really learning about now as we dig into this technical assistance effort. Um, there's a lot of confusion about the intersection between Chapter 40B and Section 3A. And in summary, these laws are completely unrelated. Um, that said, there is, and communities have valid concerns about the potential impact of this law on their subsidized housing inventory, which as you know, can affect the impact, the level of control that they have to pick and choose and, and control the kind of 40B developments that come into their community. Um, I don't think that's a concern in the short term, but it may be a concern in the long term. Housing advocates have voiced concerns that Section 3A will result in massive gentrification. Um, again, undocumented, it's a valid concern. And both advocates and communities have expressed concern that the law does not permit high enough levels of affordability. Finally, the development community has expressed concern that even the lowest required level allowed affordability 10% may not pencil out for certain communities. Next slide, please. But basically, in closing, I wanted to say that we ended up feeling comfortable, and I'm saying MHP on behalf of sort of the affordable housing community, because we really ended up feeling like it will promote sufficient amounts of affordability. You've got the 10% of right, there's a lot of options, 40 R, um, up to 20% affordable with economic feasibility analysis. And this is not even to mention the, bio, the, the, the district requirements, the 
3A is completely silent on a big option here, which is you can put additional provisions for much deeper affordability by right or by special permit. Um, you're probably going to want to use greater offsets if that's the case. But as long as you cover the baseline um, by right use, you can require more in your overlay district. Um, we also really do believe that it will promote that, that the supply and demand argument probably will work. Um, more compact development has been shown to have lower construction costs, um, more, I, I should say, heating costs, heating and utility costs, and redu reduced commuting time and costs for residents. So in closing, that's really all I have to say. It was a, it's been a long journey with this policy. We ended up feeling very comfortable with this. Um, so that's it for my slides. Great, thanks. The next speaker is Greg Sampson. All right. I am sharing my screen. Um, okay, great. So th thanks for having me. I um, want to talk a little bit um, about both the uh, per perceptions of the, or the, the, uh, the observations of this um, as both um, a city official, uh, chair of the planning board, and someone who represents developers um, before many local boards and communities in these areas. Um, so I'll start by giving you an intro to Melrose. Um, I don't want to presume everyone knows where Melrose is, but it's it's right here. Um, hopefully this will zoom in. Um, it's a small community, uh, less than five square miles. Uh, we sit right between Route 1 and Route 93 going north. So depending on how you get to New Hampshire, uh, you're going to pass us to the east or the west. Um, we are a commuter rail community um, under the MBTA communities. You can see that the uh, Haver line of the commuter rail runs right through the, uh, right through the center of town. Um, it establishes the, the wrong side of the tracks where my wife grew up and the right side of the tracks where I grew up. Um, which is fun. Um, we have three, three commuter rail stops in the 2.2 miles that the, the train runs through the town, uh, the city. Um, so we have a significant amount of station area. We have 774 acres of station area within uh, our small community. Um, we're also right at the edge of uh, the orange line. The uh, Oak Grove station is less than a quarter mile uh, from, from the, the southern limit of Melrose, um, it's in Malden. Um, so we have uh, a lot of transit opportunities. Uh, we were originally identified as a subway or a light rail community, but when the guidelines were changed, we became a commuter rail community. And the city has done a lot to promote transit-oriented development. And I included a picture here, um, if you can see my cursor. This shows uh, parcels with buildings of five or more units in Melrose. And you can see that a lot of our multifamily development is concentrated along the rail corridor. We adopted a rail corridor overlay district. We adopted a smart growth overlay district. And we um, adopted an incentive zoning for the downtown, which is all within a, a half mile of several of the commuter rail stops. Uh, we've also recently approved uh, several projects that impose no parking requirements, uh, which 
is interesting. Um, that's that's been a big change for us. Uh, we've always allowed flexibility where downtown, where there's municipal parking lots available, um, but but having no new parking with projects that are not located in downtown is, is new. Uh, and lastly, we did adopt a housing production plan last year that kind of captured a lot of the same themes that we'll be talking about today. For these reasons, when we started this process, um, we thought we were in great shape. Uh, we thought that we would have no problem meeting these requirements and demonstrating that we had the right number of units uh, that could be developed as of right. Um, and then we got into it a little bit. Now, we have very good city planners who started to look at some of the issues. And I think, we're in, I think we are in good shape, but there are a few things that did pop up. Uh, I won't go through the affordability requirements again in too much detail. Well, we did have a pre-existing ordinance that requires 15% affordable. When we first looked at this, we, we said, this shouldn't be an issue for us because our affordability requirement is not discretionary. It's not uh, subject to special permit requirement. It's an as of right, it's, it's imposed on as of right projects as well, but I, I understand why the concern was was brought forward and you know, someone who represents developers, I, I, I kind of can see both sides of this, this picture is that you know, burdensome affordability requirements really can impact the ability to produce new units. Ultimately, I think where we landed was, was the perfect compromise. Um, I think the, the many of the municipalities that have a, uh, inclusionary policies or ordinances that have been adopted in recent years have the economic study uh, ready to go and can show that development, you know, what's being imposed is is reasonable and will not impact the development of new housing. Um, mixed use is probably where we struggled a little bit more. Uh, we originally expected that most of our downtown areas would qualify. Uh, what we didn't contemplate is that because our units uh, are allowed as of right on second floor and above, that these would not qualify. Again, I think that the reality is, is as I look at this from the perspective of you know, bring, bringing development projects forward, a lot of my concerns over the years with uh, impositions on mixed use is that it's not always taking into consideration what the market really requires. And so we've actually started to shift our thinking a little bit anyways. Um, we have projects that are multifamily and they have uh, the community uses on the first floor. A lot of those function as if they were uh, commercial uses. Often they have uses that can invite other members of the public in. Uh, lobbies of residential developments can often actually have a, a lot of turnover and activity. They can function a lot like um, you know, what, what you'd hope the downtown to function like. Often they can be more active than, you know, a dentist office or an insurance office on the first floor as well. Uh, and I think I'll talk a little bit about how we might approach some of these going forward to the extent, you know, we, we still want to push this issue. Um, we also have a downtown, a historic district designation, which we were concerned would undermine the as of right uh, when we were originally working on the guidelines with DHCD, there was talk about uh, non-zoning ordinances could possibly, uh, if if they impacted the development of housing, could be viewed as being you know, discretionary approvals. 
I think ultimately the decision was that it has to be a zoning ordinance. And if, if I'm incorrect, I'll, I'll let Chris or Nate correct me on that. But, you know, now it looks to be that non-zoning considerations aren't necessarily uh, a factor in this analysis. So even though we have um, a discretionary review process for non-zoning historic resources in the downtown, that still does not uh, work against us. Uh, the last issue that has actually generated more discussion than I thought it would was uh, the suitable for children. Um, we do not have anything in our zoning that caps the number of bedrooms or uh, you know limits. And, and I don't think in any of the recent decisions we've had on multifamily development have we limited the number of bedrooms. Uh, tried to you know suggest that fewer three bedrooms is good because it's a reduced impact on the school system. Uh, we've avoided that, and I think for the right reasons. Um, but we do have we do have a couple things in our zoning that I think we'll have to address here. One is we have some presumed minimum unit size that probably are a relic from a long time ago that I think have been replaced effectively by the sanitation code. And I think we'll we'll end up pulling those out of our zoning. We also have something in our definition of uh, family that presumes four people as a family for density purposes. I don't think that's necessarily a conflict, but I think it's something we'll probably take out anyways. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> amongst the the planning staff, I think the the definition of family can be challenging. I've I've worked in other communities where they have um, definitions of single family and you know, that, that are clearly in violation of kind of a, a constitutional um, protection. But I think that, you know, a definition or uh, something brought forward from a higher level to, you know, maybe we can include that in the, the model bylaws, a good definition for family for th this purpose. Um, so, so the challenges and opportunities. So, you know, as we're going forward, I think we continue to look at the as of right requirements. Uh, I, I see that both as working with clients who are trying to propose a project in a municipality and then working with our uh, Office of Planning Community Development staff and trying to make sure we're compliant with the new requirements. You know, what we're really coming down to is that balance of incentivizing what we want, but also, you know, allowing what should be allowed. We've looked at a few instances where if we really want um, a, a non-residential, non-apartment first floor use, maybe there's uh, a density bonus. Um, and what I think, I think the way this would work and you know, we haven't tested it yet, but if, if we were for instance, to allow a development of say 20 units on a property without an incentive, but 40 units with an incentive and that that 40 units essentially bumps us up and, and puts commercial uses in the first floor, I, th I think the analysis would allow us to count the 20 units um, in meeting the unit count, whereas you know, hopefully the development that came forward would be the 40 units with the, the, uh, the commercial included. So that, that's a, the kind of way we're looking at that 
you know, how to get over that um, as of right provision. And again, I, I don't have a problem with it. I think it, I think it works pretty well, but it does require a little bit of creativity. Um, reduced parking, I think is interesting too. And obviously the, you know, part of the whole MBTA communities is, you know, where transit exists, you, you, sh you should be able to develop and, and lower the commuting costs, as Katie mentioned. Uh, there's less car dependency. We're actually, we see that pretty commonly. Um, we've at, we, we asked for studies on parking with, with our projects where they, they try to justify a lower than required threshold. And, and it's all, you know, the evidence is there that the demand is not necessary. We don't need two units, two, two spaces per unit. We often need less than one. It can be even, you know, down to zero. Uh, interestingly, you know, we're, we're still stuck in that position where we're, we're granting that relief for reduced parking through a discretionary mechanism. And that's, you know, a special permit, which now fortunately is a majority vote, but, but for fundamentally that exposes these projects to challenges. We have um, some new groups in town who don't like what we've approved. They think it's too much development. They ironically claim that there's too much traffic and not enough new parking. And despite the number of times we present this as, you know, incompatible analysis, um, they still they still push us on these. So, you know, we've had three or four really good projects proposed that in the past year and a half that have been subject to an appeal. And obviously that's, you know, less than desirable for, for everyone who's trying to promote these projects. Um, with, you know, working with developers, I think the, the interesting things that have come up have really been, you know, a lot of the sites I've been working on have been outside of the half mile. And so, so what I end up doing is you're spending a lot of time with a municipality who's trying to, you know, put together the right kind of zoning that might accommodate a project that's outside of the district or outside of the station radii, but also, you know, maybe co combine it with a new district within the station radius that you, you then get the benefit of maybe advancing your projects, but also helping the community solve their uh, issue and, and get towards compliance. I, again, I, I don't have a real concern about the analysis for the, I think, I think where the DHCD ended up in the guidance with the number of acres and in the, you know, percentages in the district. I think it's a very good and logical outcome. It just obviously, when, when you're representing the developer side, if you don't quite make it in there, it presents a little bit of a burden. Uh, lastly, I, I think, you know, all in all, my, my biggest concern with all this is that all, everything function, you know, it all hinges on the success of the MBTA in, in many respects. And, you know, this is, I, I posted my, uh, my, my alerts this morning from the T, a lot, lot of delays on, on my routes. Um, I, I was a 20 day a month commuter rail rider before COVID. Uh, I, I, you know, I think it's a, it's a great system and has great potential to always, you know, to serve us and, and be there for the development around it. And uh, hopefully we can just continue to, to, to fund, you know, put, put the right prior priorities together for the T so it can, it can help this. Um, we, we can build it and they will come and all that. So 
so that's it for me. Uh, I think we're moving on to questions and answers. I'll stop sharing and turn it back to the moderators. Thanks so much, Greg. Um, so we got a couple questions from the viewers. Um, the first one is, as to the incentive, or so the first two were written during um, Chris and Nate's talk. So Chris and Nate, these are directed towards you. Um, so as to the incentivized but not require mixed use development, Nate mentioned, I see municipalities where the 15 units per acre is not nearly dense enough to make development economically feasible. Could a community technically comply with the density and acreage requirements as of right, knowing it's not economically feasible to build and then include higher density incentives within that district, like mixed use affordability or in discretionary review? Um, I can take this, and um, I think the first two questions in the chat are, are fairly related and speak to the same general concepts. Um, it's important to remember a couple things about the structure of the, the guidelines and their requirements. One of them is to accept the fact that the, this Section 3A really sets forth some minimum standards that communities have to meet with their zoning in terms of their capacity for as of right multifamily housing. And uh, that standard is set with the understanding that there is existing development and existing development probably accounts already for part of that capacity. That being said, um, you have to consider the interaction between the land area, the unit capacity and the gross density. It's mathematically quite unlikely that all three of those boxes would be able to be checked in a single district in that way that a community would not have to, uh, especially when we're talking about larger communities like the commuter rail and rapid transit communities that have location requirements, high unit capacities based on their existing housing stock. Um, it, it's just a, a virtual certainty that they would have to upzone for additional units in those locations to an extent where um, additional multifamily housing opportunities as of right would be available through that zoning because if they their unit capacities are high enough that if you only were thinking about for example gross density and land area you're just not going to approach your unit capacity numbers um in, in connection with the incentives for for example mixed use or deeper affordability um it i don't know that i'm entirely following that it would be economically infeasible um to build Generally, I guess it would be the same concept that the neighborhoods essentially built out as to zoning, but I guess I would just reiterate that um, as long as the community meets those objective zoning metrics that we require, then it can you it can allow anything else that it wants in that zoning district, including, for example, higher densities uh, that, that would provide those density bonuses to give developers the incentive to build more affordable units or to do something like have street retail in the development. I, I hope that answers the question. Thanks, Nate. Um, another question that came in is, says, my understanding was that historic districts and neighborhood conservation districts would prevent multifamily development as of right and thus parcels subject to such designations could not be included in compliant multifamily districts. Is that correct? Uh, that I, I think Greg kind of hit the nail on the head on that. It's outside of zoning. So with section 3A, we can't control for that. That being said, a neighborhood conservation district could be a zoning district. And if, if so, that would factor into it, but a, a non-zoning historic ordinance would not play into the analysis. 
Exactly. And then one last question just came in. Is there another amendment to 40A that is relevant to the MBTA community zoning in addition to section 3A? I recall that being said, but I can't find anything on that. Um, I can take this. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I did mention at the beginning, you know, the Economic Development Bond Bill of 2020 included um, a variety of changes to Chapter 40A. Uh, one, the, the other major one was changing Section 5 and 40A to allow for simple majority votes um, uh, for certain zoning amendments. Um, so it certainly is possible. And again, I uh, we have a uh, uh, we put up the mass.gov backslash MBTA communities is the website for, for 3A. Um, we have another website um, under mass.gov um, housing choice initiative, where we have a page or, or a series of pages dedicated to the legislative changes that relate to simple majority. And there were some other legislative changes as well. Um, and so it's certainly possible that um, some of the zoning um, to comply with 3A may qualify for a simple majority vote. Uh, so all of you, I mean, you're not from towns, but if you're from <laughs> representing a town or a city, I'd say please talk to your town or town council or city solicitor to, you know, uh, walk uh, down the path as you're developing zoning to do some analysis about whether that zoning bylaw or zoning ordinance would qualify for simple majority under Section 5 as it was amended. So I, I'm not sure if that's what Gene was talking about, but it is that's certainly in our minds um, possible. But you should just read carefully the guidance um, that we've also provided on the simple majority um, on those web pages, um, just to make sure. It's it's not as straightforward as you might think, um, but generally they refer to eligible locations and multifamily by right or multifamily by special permit in an eligible locations. Transit area, uh, these um, station areas are eligible locations, but there are other eligible locations as well. So I just advise folks to kind of do some research on whether or not you think um, a new zoning district may qualify for a simple majority, which is very important, obviously, um, in open town meetings, of course. Thanks, Chris. Um, another question that just came in is, does DHCD have a position on whether municipalities who do not comply could be subject to legal action beyond loss of grants and funds? No, we do not have a position on that. Um, we, you know, like you, we will be waiting to see if um, a, a developer, for example, might bring suit to some uh, jurisdiction that's just refused to comply or it has not um, complied in a, in a timely way, um, but we don't have an official position on it. Uh, and then one more that just came in a PowerPoint slide by DHD showed excluded land for Needham. How can others find a readable, usable map of other locations? Great question. Um, again, on the mass.gov MBTA communities website, um, one of the things that is part of the compliance model, so you have to kind of get through to the compliance model section through the table of contents on the website. Uh, and we actually have a GIS shape files that are, we call land maps that are available for every single one of the MBTA communities. Um, now you, those can be downloaded by anybody, but to open them, you do need a GIS program. Um, so either, you know, work with the town, um, regional planning assist, uh, agencies have been trained on how to use the compliance model and are ready to assist communities. For the private sector folks out there, if you're not working with, if you don't have GIS within your own law firms, which may not be <laughs> may not be uh, very common, you may work with um, an engineering firm. There are some free GIS programs. One's called QGIS. I'm not promoting them, but just you know, they're 
if you know, you may be able to find somebody to help you open that in a GIS program, but you will need a GIS program to be to open those files. Uh, and so hopefully, you know, some towns and cities have very sophisticated um, staff with GIS programs. Uh, and so maybe they're um, already using them and developing them and you can get it from your uh, local government or you can rely on private sector. Thanks, Chris. So I think we're right at the end of our time here. Um, so thank you so much to all of our speakers for uh, presenting here. This information was extremely helpful. Um, and I can turn it back over to Caitlin at the BBA. Yeah, thank you again to all of our speakers and um, hope everyone has a lovely afternoon. Thanks.